What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Trey Parker and Matt Stone became hit animators with South Park and then swept Broadway with the Book of Mormon. But it's rock and roll that's at their core. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. We're joined by songwriters and satirists Trey Parker and Matt Stone. And we'll review the long-awaited new album from English rockers New Order. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. That is Justin Timberlake with the song Suit and Tie. We talked about it last week, his first new music since 2006. But there's another piece of news attached to it as well. That song is being used to relaunch MySpace. Jim, remember MySpace. Let's face it, you and I both were on there a lot at one time. Well, yeah, it was the place to go to find music from indie bands putting their stuff out there. came somewhere in between Napster and Facebook, right? Yes, 2005 to 2008. It was the go-to site for new music. We had breakouts from MySpace, bands like Arctic Monkeys, artists like Lily Allen, Ingrid Michelson, Sean Kingston. It was a very vital social media site at that time. It was bought by Timberlake and an investment group in 2011 for $35 million. To say that it was on the downslide is an understatement because that company was worth only six years before $580 million. So Timberlake and his partners are trying to revive MySpace. They've relaunched MySpace with a sleeker design. It's being touted as the biggest single library of music available online legally. Or is it legal? Here's the problem. There's a bunch of small labels, including some big players like Beggar's Banquet, Domino, Merge, that are saying a lot of their music is up on MySpace, but MySpace doesn't have permission to put it up there. MySpace is saying that it's likely those illicit songs were uploaded by users and not MySpace, and they would eventually be taken down. But, you know, let's face it, MySpace isn't off to a good start because of this bad publicity. I'm looking at the numbers here, though, and thinking there's got to be some way to work something out. I mean, even in its downslide, MySpace was still attracting 27 million unique visitors a month as of last December. That's down from their peak of 76 million in 2008, but that's still a significant number of fans looking for legitimate digital music online. And I got to believe that the record labels and this company will want to work something out. Ah, Greg, we love that song, People Who Died, by the late poet, novelist, and uh, rocker Jim Carroll. 
I think it's well perceived among rock fans that rock stars die younger than regular people. But there is a new study out of the UK that puts some facts and figures to this whole business. This is a study from researchers at Liverpool's John Moores University who worked with Britain's health department and looked at 1,500 pop, punk, R&B, rap, electronica, and new age artists ranging from Elvis Presley to Amy Winehouse. They found that 137 of these stars, or 9.2%, had died representing higher levels of mortality than the general public. So, yeah, this notion of rock and roll and fame being a hazardous occupation is true. They debunked several other things, however— Remember when Kurt Cobain died, his mother said he's gone and joined that infamous club. She was talking about famous rock stars who died at the age of 27. Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin. In fact, the median age of death for famous musicians in North America was 45.2 years, and in the UK and in Europe, 39.6 years. The big thing here, though, is that solo artists are twice as likely to die young as members of bands. Why would that be? I would think that, you know, running around with the Rolling Stones would be potentially much more lethal than being James Taylor. But according to the study, solo artists, even though they have huge followings, tend to be relatively isolated. They don't have that support network that comes from being in a band. And when you have a solo act, irrespective of what they say in interviews, it's an incredibly egotistical thing. According to the study, this is not me. You tend to be dealing with people who are more emotionally extreme. I guess that makes sense in some way. There is some good news. If you survive 25 years in the superstar spotlight, the age of death begins to be much more in line with the general public. If you last that long, you're not going to die any younger than somebody who's a plumber or an auto mechanic. Finally... All this business of the wretched excess of rock and roll may not be what really is responsible for these artists dying young. The researchers are saying that much more than the hedonism of the star lifestyle, an adverse childhood experience, physical or sexual abuse, is more likely to lead to alcohol or drug abuse later on just like regular people. Now, they put this in context throughout history and in all different art forms, from artists like Vincent van Gogh and Ernest Hemingway to Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys and Amy Winehouse. And the study concludes, perhaps it is the continual striving for some sort of unattainable artistic perfection that drives them. Thankfully, Greg, you and me do not have that problem. Should we blame the government or blame society? Or should we blame the images on TV? No, blame Canada! Blame Canada! With all their beady little eyes and flapping heads so full of lies. Blame Canada! Blame Canada! We need to form a full assault! Yes, You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that's the Oscar-nominated tune, Blame Canada, from the film South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. And we're playing it in honor of our next guests, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the duo behind South Park, as well as that huge hit musical, Book of Mormon. Jim, last week you and I ran through some great moments of satire in rock and roll, and that topic was inspired by Trey and Matt's visit to our studio. They're certainly masters of satire, and most importantly, they often do it through song. I mean, music features heavily throughout South Park. 
The show even spawned a hit Rick Rubin-produced album. Greg, I think you can see the musical sensibility throughout the show's aesthetic, and it's a specifically punk rock one. When it comes to making fun, anything is fair game. The show is full of attitude, and after 16 seasons, the animation is still wonderfully crude and lo-fi. For these reasons, you and I were excited to talk music and comedy with the duo when they were in town for the Book of Mormon's Chicago opening. The musical tells the story of two Mormon missionaries sent to a remote village in northern Uganda. It's uh, it's even bluer than South Park, if you will. But despite this, or perhaps because of it, it's a smash hit. Trey, Matt, and collaborator Robert Lopez have won a slew of Tony Awards and a record-breaking slot on the Billboard chart. But as we were happy to learn during our conversation, despite being the toast of Broadway, it's rock and roll that lives in Trey and Matt's hearts. We first hear from Trey Parker. I think I was about... 12 when I discovered music and Mm. started playing a piano and started playing around with the idea of funny songs. Both Matt and I are huge Python fans, and I think two of our favorite moments in Python were either the animation moments or the song. So, uh, you know, I think that that from from a pretty early age, I got into the idea of writing funny songs. And then the movie Spinal Tap came out. Mm. And I think that I remember I was in junior high and I remember that really launched a whole nother thing for me, which was like, I listened to those songs over and over and and, um, thought about writing funny songs. And by the time I was in high school, I wrote my own album of of funny songs, Ballads for the 80s Man, basically. (laughs) But I was was 17 years old, and I did it on a four-track recorder, got it out, sold it for $5 a piece at my school, made like $300 and thought I was just the man. Wow, a lo-fi pioneer. Yeah. And so it was really off of those songs, and that's what I really thought, you know, between being a piano player and a songwriter and and the comedy aspect of it, I was like, there's something here. And that's when I I ended up going to Berkeley. Um, But then I wanted to be closer to home, so I transferred back to the University of Colorado in Boulder. Mm -hmm. And I was at the music school there, but they're a very classical school. So luckily, they also had the smaller film department, and that's where I met Matt. And Matt, what was uh, what was your musical background? Um, well, I mean, you know, I'm not near like I'm not a songwriter like tr- tr- like Trey is. You know, I basically was like one zillion other kids in like 1983. Let's say I was born in 71, so I was like mm-hmm. 12 or 13 years old, and I heard Tom Sawyer on the radio, and I decided right then I was going to play drums. Uh-huh. And so within probably three weeks, I had a drum set from a pawn shop. Was and it the Neil Peart 17 Tom Tom yeah, kind of thing? Absolutely. Like, yeah, just that <laughs> song. I was like, I want to do that. It was the first time I'd ever really thought about music. My um, Neither of my parents were really into music. Like, we didn't really have mm. music going on in our house. So it was up to me to kind of go find it completely uncurated, you know, as a 12-year-old, which you're just going to find, you know, Foreigner and Def Leppard and <laughs> hair bands. Yeah. And, and so, and then, and, then, and then I kind of found... Um, Ska, that was a big thing for me, mm. the police and madness and all the English ska. And, and it's very like the drums and that is amazing. Yeah. And that was my thing. I, you know, I went, to, I went to see you where I met Trey and my career, I was in the math department. But basically, I was pretty sure I was just going to be a rock drummer. Like that was my career. That was my well thought out <laughs> career path was, was rock and roll. And then somehow I got in somehow, I, you know, the, I took a summer film class and they seemed sort of the same. You know, if, I think if there was a music production Mm. Um, Trey probably would say the same thing. If there was a music recording or production class, I maybe would have taken that. It was, but film was like this technical thing that was sort of not, it was close enough to music, but you didn't have to yeah. like, you weren't up all night playing in bars or, you know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't part of that whole well, thing. But as also, soon as we got together and started doing film, we started thinking about how we could do the music for the movie. For the uh, films, uh, you collaborative know? in the same way that a band is. Yeah. Film, yeah. And, the, and really that's, you know, we've, 
Matt and I, from day one, you can go back and look at all the interviews. We've always tried to say we're more like a band because it just sounds cooler than <laughs> we're animators. And so, um, but we really do fancy ourselves. Like, and the, the truth is, Matt and I have been in a recording studio together a lot um, as as a band and as doing a song for this or doing a song for that, you know. And and Matt, like the perfect definite, he is a drummer, you know, or or a, and, it, and he plays bass too, you know. He is that he's that guy that's like you know. Not so much the songwriter, but if he wasn't the one in the room playing the drums, the song would be different. Of course, as soon as we found even a small bit of money and fame, we decided we were going to be a rock band. We bought a bunch of instruments. You know, all stuff and a PA and stuff, and we started <laughs> thinking where we could play. And we rehearsed more than we worked on the first shows of South Park, like yeah. rehearsed with the band. The thing that unifies a lot of the stuff that you're doing musically, at least for me anyway, we were talking about this whole idea of, of DIY punk aesthetic transgression and there's only certain bands that do that i mean punk is obviously a big part of it but did you guys sort of have a common ground on that musically when you when you met at the university of colorado was there something like there's certain bands or a certain sensibility because it seems to inform a lot of your work well i think on both i mean we, we looked up to big big well-produced bands but i'll give two bands that we both totally love that that we do kind of have some kinship with is is ween and primus mm-hmm. who both have that total yeah. like like there is like we we've met those guys now after the fact, but we were kind of like the, you know we had a we had a hundred and twenty dollar four track. I mean it was sort of a necessity, you know. And comedy, the more expensive it get it gets, it doesn't get any funnier, mm-hmm. you know. And that's just I mean look at the early Ween albums. I mean they're done on a four track, they're yeah. incredible, they're awesome. And if they were done in a big studio like we're sitting in right now, they wouldn't be one cent better. And it also, you know, it wasn't a any kind of chance that we, you know, when we knew we had at least the money to do a pilot of a TV show and thought, wow, we've arrived. We were like, okay, well, we can ask any band to do the theme song for that TV show. <laughs> mm-hmm. We knew who that was going to be, you know, and we, yeah. but and it was still this kind of thing of like, oh, I, they, they won't do it, you know what I mean? And 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 uh, it was a great. You know, to this day, we're friends with those guys, and yeah. and that was really cool to have Primus be a part of all that. I'm going down south. I'm gonna have myself a time. Friendly faces everywhere. Humble folks without temptation. I'm going down south. I'm gonna leave my woes behind. Keep a parking day or night. People starting party night. And on up south, I'm gonna see if I can't unwind. That's a great parallel because Les Claypool with those voices, he could have done cartoon characters too. Oh, I mean, for sure. Like, so you go from, from the college band dream. When did that sort of morph over into South Park and, you know, we're doing TV? Well, I think it sort of crossed, you know, it obviously it crossed right away when um, I, I got it in my head to, that I was going to make a feature film. By writing a script, I basically realized now I had, sort of had a pitch and was, you know, <laughs> getting these guys that, you know, I was saying like, you know, do this musical about because Alfred Packer, the, the notorious cannibal, was this big deal at CU. And I thought, you know, if nothing else, I, I think that that really defines us. We're always kind of like, <laughs> well, if nothing else, this will always be this thing that that can the university will have for yeah. Alfred Packer Day. <laughs> well, we'll be, we'll and, be big and bolder. Yeah, <laughs> we don't think like, wow, we'll be huge someday. We think, well, if nothing else, 
Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. We had a lot yeah. of meetings for Packer at Red Robin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all those meetings at Red Robin over their bottomless fries. Um, but, you know, because I grew up not just, um, you know, was, there was sort of the comedy thing and the music thing, but also a true fan of musicals. Mm-hmm. And as a big movie buff, I loved all the old Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. And by high school was acting in musicals and being Danny Zuko in Greece and things like that. And and so I, I really wanted to make a movie musical. And that's where I think it really first for the first time, because obviously, you know, at the time, Matt and I are what, 21? Yeah, like 20, yeah. And we're making this thing that we didn't even know what we were doing, but we're doing the same combination of writing songs and, mm. and figuring out how they fit into the movie and then making the movie kind of work around the song. And that's really um, a lot of times how, why I think music can work so well in our stuff, because it always is so organic. It never mm. is... We figure something out and we're like, you know, let's put a song in here. It's always uh, more often, at least, that the song comes first and then it's like, how do we make this a bigger thing? That's why with Book of Mormon it was so important that the songs came first. And if you took the songs out of Book of Mormon and tried to watch it, it wouldn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And so many even Broadway shows that you go to – you know, and especially a lot of them are written off of movies. So they sit there and they watch them and they go, okay, well, turn this into a musical. We just need to fill it, fill it in with songs rather than really thinking like the song should tell the story. What did Jesus do when they sentenced him to die? Did he try to run away? Did he just break down and cry? No, Jesus dug down deep knowing what he had to do when faced with his own death Jesus knew that he had to man up he had to man up we're going to continue talking with Trey Parker and Matt Stone the creative forces behind South Park and the Book of Mormon in just a minute here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX later we've got reviews of two new records by New Order and Parquet Courts now it's up to me and it's time to man up Jesus had his cap and now it's mine to man up Taking the reins, I'm crossing the bear Just like Jesus, I'm growing a pair I've got to stand up, can't just clam up It's time to man up Cause there's a time in your life when you My name is Elder Price, 
and I would like to share with you the most amazing book. Hello, my name is Elder Grant. It's a book about America a long, long time ago. It has so many awesome parts. You simply won't believe how much this book can change your life. Hello, my name is Elder Green. I would like to share with you this book of Jesus Christ. Hello. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And you've been listening to our chat with Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the creative minds behind South Park and the Book of Mormon. That's the opening number from the show, which continues a successful run on Broadway and now is in Chicago. Greg, as Trey and Matt explained, they've always been rock guys. Big fans of Ween, Primus, Progressive Rock. So we wondered how they could make the leap from that stuff to, let's face it, the less cool world of Broadway musicals. We posed this question to Trey Parker. You know, when we started South Park, we weren't writers. We, we were... We were kind of just little punks that were doing Terry Gilliam kind of animation and yeah. throwing music into it and had a new take on things. But we didn't know we weren't we didn't know what we were doing writing wise. And we grew into that. And we really had these big things we can point at in our careers, like the South Park movie, where we can say, all right, that we got schooled in that. And we learned a lot about writing. You know, for us as storytellers, it is fascinating the story you can tell in a song. And I really, you know, it's interesting because in rock music, it's, it is way less. That, the closest parallel is actually country music. Yeah. Because so much in country music, you or way more often, they tell a story. But it's interesting, too, when, when rock people try to do Broadway mm. because it's, it is, you know, it's a different form. And obviously, sometimes it can totally work. And sometimes you can kind of see right away. There's a, such a difference between a groove and a rhythm and a melody, you know, and a melody being so critical to – to, that, that, to a musical. That was the hardest part for me doing learning how to do musicals with through Trey and then meeting Bobby Lopez. It's like being a yeah. rock guy. I always just want to just groove. Yeah, <laughs> I always like. I'm always like, oh man, and I'm, I'm not a very good drummer at like arrangements and like sophisticated. I just like getting into a groove and just sitting there for like an hour. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? And I don't really care what's going on in the vocals. I don't really care. You know what I mean? Who's paying and, attention? Yeah, who's paying attention? And that is a total rock thing. Is it's got it like musically got to just keep driving well, you yeah. never. So, and then to do musicals and know that that's not the point of it. Mm. That's definitely like an education. That's definitely a huge difference between the, the mm. two things. But I, that realization of how sort of to use a horrible word to use in art, but how efficient a song can be in storytelling. Because you've, you've, you, you can just have one, you can have a, a, a character just look at the camera or the audience and say, I'm feeling this mm. in a way that you can't do in the middle of a scene without, I mean, you can in certain forms, but like right. basically you can just do that and, and then be able to accent everything with, with music and, and take you emotionally either with what they're saying, counterpoint to what they're saying, which is like turn it off in, in Book of Mormon where it's the music and what they're saying is sort of. At odds, at odds constantly. When I was young, my dad would treat my mom real bad. Every time the Utah Jazz would lose, he'd started drinking and I'd started thinking, how am I gonna keep my mom from getting abused? I'd see her all scared and my soul was dying. My dad would say to me, now don't you dare start crying. Turn it off. Like a light switch, just go flick. It's our nifty little morning trick. Turn it off. Turn it off. You end up three minutes later 
in a completely changed world. Well, I mean, to satirize anything as effectively as you guys do in, in Book of Mormon, you have to love it, I think, in, in some way. People have pointed out that there's clear references to certain great songs from previous musicals in, in the play. Give us two or three musicals that really worked for you on whatever level that you carry through to this day. Yeah, well, I think that the same, the same as, you know, some old movies work. The story's solid, and you're following a character along. And again, this is the stuff that we really get into is, is what's the myth. When doing Book of Mormon, you know, we really, as soon as you start saying, okay, and then we'll have the two Mormons there, and they have their first time that they're pitching the religion to this group of people in a distant country— and they're doing well. Of course, Music Man comes immediately to mind. You know, you're like, oh, this is kind of like Music Man. Well, you got trouble, my friend. Right here, I say trouble. Right here in River City. Why, sure, I'm a billiard player. Certainly, mighty proud to say I'm always mighty proud to say it. I consider that the hours I spend with a cue in my hand are golden. Help me cultivate horse sense and a cool head and a keen eye. Did you ever take and try to give an ironclad leave to yourself from a three-rail billiard shot? I'm going to take you back to biblical times, 1823. An American man named Joe living on a farm in the holy land of Rochester, New York. You mean the Mormon prophet Joseph Smith? That's right. That young man spoke to God. He spoke to God? And God said, Joe, people really need to know that the Bible is in two parts. There's a part three to the Bible, Joe. And I, God, have anointed you to dig up this part three that is buried by a tree on the hill in your backyard. Wow, God says go to your backyard and start digging. That makes perfect sense. Joseph Smith went up on that hill and dug where he was told. And deep in the ground, Joseph found shining plates of gold. What are these golden plates? Who buried them here and why? Then appeared an angel. His name was Moroni. And then a big one being from The Sound of Music when, with I Believe. Because I Believe yeah. in the Book of Mormon was actually a song as a, an example of what I was talking about earlier where we didn't have a song there. We had a moment and this guy kind of broke down. The lead character, Elder Price, kind of broke down and realized that he'd messed up and he's going to double down. He's going to do this. And he just kind of prayed and said it. And it was, you know, pointed out. It was so glaringly obvious that this has to be a song. I believe that the Lord God created the universe. I believe that he sent his only son to die for my sins. And I believe that ancient Jews built boats and I want to get back to Book of Mormon, but we've sort of skipped over a big chunk of all the, all the stuff that you guys have done that led up to this moment. Obviously, South Park and the integral role that music played in that. And Jim and I were just going through some of the some of the video of stuff, you know, the, the stick satire. Where did that come from? Well, I think that, again, this was just <laughs> spoiled kids suddenly having what they wanted. Yep. Because as soon as, you know, South Park took off like a rocket. I mean, we were from this little obscure thing on cable to the cover of Time Magazine and Newsweek in the same week within a period of a few months. Mm. And the Denver Broncos won the Super Bowl. Like, we were freaking out, right? Like, this, this all happened in the, same, in the yeah. same time. The first place our minds went is like, oh, my God, we've made it. Okay, album, musical. Because we're always thinking, okay, well, this isn't going to last. You know, or if that's another yeah. big Big they're going to find. They're going to find us out. They're going to yeah. figure yeah. out that we don't know what we're doing. We're going to be back Any in Colorado second. soon. Get it, so get it while we can. Yeah. 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 So we got to do an album and we got to do a musical. Mm-hmm. And so we immediately really got to work on this whole Chef Aid idea. 
and the movie version of South Park, which we wanted to be a musical. You know, with that whole album experience, which was so crazy, because it was just suddenly we were in the studio with like our all our gods. Ozzy Osbourne? Yeah, and, and for me, it was Elton John. I yeah. mean, I was suddenly in a studio with Elton John, and he... The piano guy. He was the guy, he was the reason I started playing piano. When we did that Come Sail Away joke, which was just was a joke of like, that's one of those weird songs that you get in your head. It just has that sinister quality, that song, where you, you go, it's oh, that's earworm. Yeah. And you just go, and you just kind of have to finish the whole thing, you know? And that was the joke, because Cartman mm. had to finish the whole thing. So we tried to get the rights, and for some reason, Dennis DeYoung wanted to talk to one of us. So I, talk, I talked to Dennis DeYoung on the telephone. We live happily forever. Let's throw some of your other famous song parodies at you, because uh, they're they're definitely among our favorite moments of South Park. Gay fish, taking on Kanye West. <laughs> Gay fish. I've been so lonely, girl. I've been so sad and down. Couldn't understand why haters joked around. I wanted to be free with other creatures like me, and now I got my wish. Cause I know that I'm a gay fish, gay fish, gay fish, yeah. I remember we were doing a writer's retreat in Seattle, and we were at this famous locks area where you could watch the salmon <laughs> jump. And we were watching the salmon yeah, jump. I've been there. <laughs> and we're like, I don't, we know, talk, I, I, don't I know exactly how we got there. We were, wa- we were with um, Vernon Chapman was with us and Bill Hader, yeah. and we were walking along getting salmon on a field trip. Complete, like, let's not, we're, we're taking a break, we're going to go look at these salmon. I don't know, and they jump up these locks, and you get to watch them. So then we started joking about a really heroic like brave salmon that would be dressed like evil Knievel right yeah and then somebody's mentioned that Kanye West had just done this evil Knievel video where he would like dress himself up like the yeah. snake river jump mm. and then somehow somebody brought up fish sticks and then comedy and then was gay made. fish comedy was made. and then gay okay. fish it was a long right. way it makes no sense all right but then once we got to the other side and this happens a lot in South Park actually where we'll just go there and then when we get to fish sticks which I'm saying hopefully correctly enough for the radio. Um, <laughs> that then we kind of made this thing about like Kanye is such a humorless guy. You know, he just doesn't seem to have a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. So that became yeah. so it actually came around to something that seemed like we actually yeah. Because at first all we had was totally do you like fish sticks here, then you're a gay fish, and we're like, well, that's not an episode. <laughs> but then we get to Thursday and we're like, well, let's just do that show, and it's like that's not an episode, but we all want to go home on Thursday. So we're like, that's yeah. what we're doing. And then Friday we're like, really, we got to turn this into an episode? But then we find something to do, and I I know it was probably the Monday before the show aired. <laughs> They were like, oh, we, let's, do a, let's do a song. And I'm like, I think I can, you know, I'll do this kind of, I'll try to sing like Kanye. Just get me one of those auto-tune things because that's what he does. Uh-huh. But I learned doing that, that trying to sing with an auto-tune, if you can sing, yeah. is really hard. Yeah. It's not like I'm a great singer, but I do sing, I have pitch and I don't <laughs> sing flat and I don't sing sharp. So, so unfortunately, <laughs> I was sitting there and I was trying to do it. I'm doing, you know. I'm being rolled around again, and, and and it's like it's not doing anything. I'm like, no, you got to turn that thing on to make that sound. Like it's yeah. on, dude. And I, so then I had to try to sing it like 
I've been rolling around. And that's the only way it works. And then you heard this rude, you heard it sound like Kanye. And I'm like, oh, yeah. that sounds like him. I'm a fish, yo. It's all right, girl. Making love to other gay fish. All right. What about the goth dance-off? Now, that seems to require a significant amount of subcultural knowledge. Well, it's probably – we're both – we both like The Cure a lot. So yeah. That, and I mean – I, mean, I don't think I was ever a goth, but a lot of my friends were. I mean, goth culture, the, the people that went to Denny's and drank coffee all night, like, I definitely know some of those – some of those people. Because, like, the hair flips were right. Everything yeah. was right. Yeah. We don't dance like those Britney and Justin wannabes at school. Goth kids dance to express pain and suffering. Yeah, the only cool way to dance is to keep your hands at your sides and your eyes looking at the ground. Then every three seconds you take a drag on your cigarette. When we met, we, we, uh, in, in college, we were in Boulder, Colorado. It's monochromatic, the place, pretty much. I mean, and, uh, Boulder's a nice place, but not just, it's not just white. It, it's also just like Dave Matthews Band wasn't around, but it's like Dave Matthews Band. And there was this one club, remember, that one, it was like this one club that was like a goth dance club mm-hmm. it was like the one club that wasn't that was different that yeah. was different and we went i went there all the time just all the hot chicks different <laughs> yeah there's the hot chicks that weren't hippies you know i love this goth all right let's <laughs> goth it up who is a man that would risk his neck for his brother man can you dig it All right, Isaac Hayes. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the place to. I mean, all right, genuine genius, and you guys get to work with him. Totally. Yeah, I mean, he he was such a great guy. When we first met him, we uh, we flew to New York to record him, and we were just like, "Here comes Isaac," and we had to explain to him that we, we thought he knew what he was getting into. We thought he'd seen Spirit of Christmas, and then he had read the script. Obviously, he'd read the script, and he knew it. No, he didn't read the script. He showed up <laughs> yeah. on some gig to do a voiceover, yeah. and he shows up, and here's these two kids, and we're like, "Well, you're the only black guy in this mountain town, and you're." fat and you sing songs <laughs> like, you know, and it's like, <laughs> Trey ran to the bathroom so nervous about saying it but he from the beginning he was just like the nicest guy and his voice is just so beautiful hello there children hello chef hello sir how's it going very well thank you everything's fine why because we're on Ritalin damn it children you don't need drugs to make you pay attention in school in my day if we didn't pay attention we got a bell to the bottom Matt was the one who would usually direct him because he would always call in from New York. And, you know, every time when Matt and I do South Park, like, we'll, we'll figure something out and I'll go write it. And immediately we go into the booth and, and do it, whether it's women talking or whatever. We just get it down. So at one point, it's all we're doing every voice in there, including Chef. But we'd always be like doing it like this, you know, and it's like so <laughs> racist and whatever. We're just like and uh, so we would have that as an early chef song. And then I would hear Matt singing to Isaac Hayes. To have him get it right, wow. which is so Me. funny because you know Isaac right. Hayes going here. No, no, and Matt's like, no, 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 Isaac, Isaac, no, you know, like get a little more groove in there. So, well, like, wow. like you so guys, funny. it's amazing that you guys even knew about him at that time because nobody was talking about Isaac Hayes at that point. I mean, his, you know, his great days apparently were way behind him. So you guys single hand again, like he was, sticks, doing, he was, you doing, resurrected him. He was doing drive time radio in New York at the time. Yeah, he was a, he was a DJ in New York. So yeah, the voice was what the main thing. The main yeah, role, just like, we had this character. I don't know. I mean, we we thought about Barry white too i mean it was just going to be but he was really religious and didn't want to be near us um and isaac said i mean it was just we had we wanted that lou rawls we talked about lou Rawls. i mean Mm -hmm. it was just we wanted that guy this like soul singer guy you know so yeah you made a great choice and he he is a sweetheart i once saw him uh in a lobby in chicago in a hotel and, and robert plant walks in he goes and Robert Plant is just like he sees Isaac across the room, and he's like walking over like a magnet, like oh, I got it, you know, hands out, like 
And Isaac turns to me and goes, who is that? <laughs> Tonight is right for love. You know I want to touch you where the lights don't go. Tonight is right for love. With Meredith Baxter burning. We've been talking to Trey Parker and Matt Stone on Sound Opinions. Thanks so much, guys, for coming in. Thank cool. you. Thank fun. you. That's fun. I'll keep you burning like a dog in heat. Tonight is right for love with Meredith Baxter burning. We're going to take a quick break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And when we come back, we'll review the first album by New Order since 2005 as well as the first widely available release from indie quartet Parquet Courts. But first, we want to hear from you. What are your favorite musical moments from South Park? And what do you think about this merging of rock, comedy, and Broadway musicals? Share your thoughts at Sorry, Chef, man. Sorry. Okay, son, but this song is about Meredith Baxter Burning, all right? But not about splinter wood in your eyes. You're right. Here, have a taco. Oh, taco, great. I, I need a taco. Mm. Messing up my business with Meredith Baxter Burning. Okay? Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a track called Sugarcane from the new New Order album called Lost Sirens, first one since 2005. Now, New Order formed in 1980 right on the heels of the implosion of Joy Division, that great post-punk band. That band died when the lead singer, Ian Curtis, hanged himself on the eve of what was to be that group's first U.S. tour. But later on, Bernard Sumner... Peter Hook, Stephen Morris, and Gillian Gilbert carried on as New Order. Eight intermittent albums spaced out over the 80s, 90s, and the millennium. And during that time, that mix of rock and disco was hugely innovative, hugely influential. We're talking about classic singles like uh, Temptation and Blue Monday that presaged that Manchester rave scene. Later on, New Order was at the center of that scene. They were part owners of that Hacienda nightclub, along with Tony Wilson, immortalized in the movie 24-Hour Party People. And the sound, 
Primal Scream, LCD Sound System, Radiohead. Hard to imagine those bands existing without the influence of New Order in their particular sounds. The group has splintered, regrouped, and gotten together many times. The last previous time that happened was in 2005 for the Waiting for the Sirens Call album and a major tour. Then Peter Hook, the bassist, left the group. Now they're back with a bunch of leftovers from those sessions. They were working on a follow-up album. Instead, it comes off as a bit of a sequel to uh, Waiting for the Sirens Call. They simply call it Lost Sirens. Here's a track from it called I Told You So from New Order on Sound Opinions. It's been ten long years since I've been home. I've been waiting here with nowhere to go. It's an occupation I don't like, but it pays the rent and turns on the light. I told you so, it has to be good news and run away with me. We'll go out every night, I'll be there by your side. That was I Told You So, Crazy World Mix, in parentheses, by New Order from the Lost Sirens album. Greg, we try hard when we introduce a record not to uh, betray any opinions. We save that for the the part after the song. But when you call it a bunch of leftovers, that's kind of really tipping your hand. That's what it is. It is a bunch of leftovers. It's surprising in some way that these remixed, retooled, leftover tunes from those sessions in 2005 sound so much of a piece but then new order always sounded of a piece you know it, it was a consistent band that relied on a handful of rhythms and very much from album to album furthered the sound in some ways but but did a lot of the same thing that's my take i was never a really major new order fan i know that you were i don't know if you'll agree with this or not but i think that 
by the time the Manchester scene had played out in the mid-90s, let's say, New Order had stopped evolving. What was fascinating from the beginning of the group to that point was that they continued to explore different aspects of underground dance culture and bring them in to what they were doing. It reflected, but it also pushed it forward. Like you said, big influence on the Manchester bands. And then they lost the plot. Now we've got the New Order blueprint, and they are just recycling it. I was not impressed with Waiting for the Siren's Call in 2005. Hook was obviously withdrawing from the band. You had only a handful of those famous Peter Hook bass solos, which was a major joy of great New Order when they were on their game. And here, he's even less present, if you will. I don't know if there's any point to owning this pointless coda for a band, no matter how much you love them in their day. I'm sorry to say this is a trash at record, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, New Order's sort of been running on fumes for, for about two decades now. They had a great first decade, maybe a little bit more than that. Again, I, I stand by everything they made in the 80s as as being truly influential and truly great. Rhythmically, they were true innovators. Uh, they were working with the very cutting edge of rhythm innovators at the time, whether it was Arthur Baker or the hip-hop scene or the acid house scene. They were pulling in all these influences into their music and making it their own. They, they haven't liked each other for a very long time. Peter Hook left the group for a reason. That wasn't the first time that somebody in that group got ticked off at somebody else and took a walk for a few years. It was never a warm and lovey group. No, it was not. Uh, but there are, amid all this filler here, there are two great tracks. One of them we just played, I Told You So, is a remix of a song that appeared on the 2005 album. Now it's in vastly improved form. I highly love that track. It's one of my favorite things they've done in probably 20 years, actually. And there's another great track called Hellbent that actually was released on a compilation a couple of years ago. So I would say to you hardcore New Order fans out there, burn it for those two tracks alone. The rest of it you can sort of leave behind. band a lot of our listeners might not have heard yet. It is called Parquet Courts. That is a song called Master of My Craft. This is their first widely distributed album, Light Up Gold, but it follows an earlier vinyl and cassette release. There's not a lot of backstory here. This band only began in 2011 in Texas, Denton, Texas, which I think is the American capital of great psychedelic garage punk rock right now. A lot of cool bands from that tiny Texas town. The four guys relocated to Brooklyn. 
where else? One of the guys, Andrew Savage, the main songwriter, he's in another band. All of these garage rockers today are called Fergus and Geronimo. They debuted with an album that originally only was released on cassette, and then they deigned to also issue it on vinyl. And then last year, they put out this record, Light Up Gold. It got a lot of underground buzz, and now it's being picked up by the Brooklyn label, What's Your Rapture, getting much wider distribution. People are excited about this band. Let's play some of it for you, and we'll come back and give our reviews. This is a track called Stoned and Starving by Parquet Courts from Light Up Gold on Sound Opinions. That is Stoned and Starving from Parquet Courts. The new album is called Light Up Gold. You know, these guys try to come across like they don't care. They're, they're a bunch of yeah. slapdash slackers hanging out in the room, hitting the bong every couple Forget hours. Forget about it. Yeah. We're, we're both grinning like idiots, I should say, right now. But but it's a, it's a pose because they, they really do care and they really do craft some excellent songs. I mean, you know, between the much tighter rhythmic propulsion and guitar playing than you would expect from the pose. I mean, these songs are concise, they hit you hard, and they come at you relentlessly. Seven of the 15 songs on this record are well under two minutes long. They never overstay their welcome. So there's a concision here that shows an attention to craft. Maybe, Or maybe they just got bored after two minutes. They said, okay, it's over with. But I, I'm going to go with the craft. I think these guys really know what they're doing. And the lyrics play dumb, but they're a lot smarter than they let on. They're talking about this fight at a certain stage in adulthood, you're out of school, let's say, 
you haven't quite embraced adulthood, you're wondering where your life is going, you're wondering if things are ever going to work out, if you're ever going to have some money in your pocket. You know, they're fighting against all this inertia, dead ends, boredom, laziness, the fact that you're unemployed. Can I ever get a decent job other than working at the coffee grind down the street? So it's all wrapped up in, in this world with these great punchy garage rock melodies that they're playing. You know, the guitar playing is frenetic. The drumming is propulsive. They should be slacked out stoner hippies, but they've given us 15 pretty great pop punk songs. And in the middle of them, throw some surprises. Like in the middle of Yonder is Closer to the Heart, they've got what sounds like a shortwave radio solo where a guitar should be. So they're doing these little innovative things, and it's surprisingly good. I I have to give it a buy-it rating. I I love this. This is a brilliant album. It makes me so happy. I I feel stupid just (laughs) listening to it every time and in a good way. You have these guys walking the streets of Brooklyn, stoned and hungry, and the big (laughs) debate is do they get roasted peanuts or do they get Swedish fish? Because they can't afford anything else. (laughs) Right, exactly. It's great stuff. It's very funny stuff. It's very true. Uh, They're not glorifying this lifestyle. They're just writing about what's happening around them. At the same time, at the risk of adding a new penalty bell to the Brian and Eno mention here on the show, these guys really worship wire. They understand that short concision that still has mm-hmm. all the elements of a great five-minute pop song, you know, bridges and choruses and verses, right, but crammed into one and a half minutes, yeah. right? There's a real wire vibe to this. There's a real, uh, at times, perubu and, and strange psychedelic punk because there's these weird synthesizer solos, bizarre gonzo psychedelic guitar solos, but they're only... 15 seconds long. There's so much happening here, and it all makes me incredibly happy. This is my most enthusiastic (laughs) buy it that I could possibly give it. I love this record. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, I think you're going to be enthused again because we've got the DBs in for a live performance. You know it, a favorite of mine from the power pop realm. As always, we have some thank yous to say, Greg, on the way out. Trey Parker and Matt Stone were recorded by Mary Gaffney. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana. Our assistant producer is Annie Minoff. Our intern is Griffin Waterman. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, is Tori Southside Malatia, the Kenny of Sound Opinions. Oh, my God! They killed Kenny! You bastards! Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Yeah, this is Lou from Brooklyn, and I just heard your uh, podcast about the uh, satirical songs. And although I don't think it's necessarily rock and roll, I think you forgot to touch upon maybe a guy that had a number two song with uh, short people, Randy Newman. Short people got
was a vertically challenged person. That was a satirical song that uh, hit close to home that everybody sang to me. Could be the number one satirical song. Who knows? Anyway, that's it. Love your podcast. Hey, Sound Opinions. Just listened to your satire episode and really loved it. Uh, my favorite satirist would have to be Nella McKay. Uh, you could go with something obvious like uh, Mother of Pearl or The Big One. Uh, but my personal favorite is I Want to Get Married, which is so close to that line between sincere and satire. Depending on my mood, can't really tell which one she's on. But given her persona, it's got to be satire, right? Thanks a lot. Keep up the great work. Nathan from Grand Rapids. I want to get married. I need to cook meals. I want to pack cute little lunches for my Brady Bunches, then read Daniel Steele. Hi, this is Monique. I'm calling from Burlington, North Carolina. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to the satire show. One song I would have loved to have heard was The Revolution Will Not Be Televised by Gil Scott Heron, who I worked closely with for quite a few years. Whenever people would come up to him and talk about The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, it was always very serious and militant, and um, (laughs) Gil (laughs) would always be like, man, it was a joke. It was satire. You didn't get it. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry R. Women Liberationist and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Keyes, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or the Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. He was very funny, and he would always slip things into his songs. He really wanted people to listen, <laughs> and, um, you know, they didn't always get the jokes. But anyway, it was a great show, and thanks. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Hi, Jim and Craig. This is Zach, Santa Cruz, California. I really enjoyed your show on satire. I want to mention uh, a band that I thought was particularly satirical in uh, 1977-1978 time frame. That is Tom Robinson Band, or TRB, and they had a particular song, Power in the Darkness. Two minutes and 45 seconds into the song, Tom Robinson starts uh, satirizing the BBC with a particularly uh, interesting take on things. And it's about time we said enough is enough saw a return to the traditional British values of discipline, obedience, morality, and freedom. Freedom from the Reds and the Blacks and the criminals, prostitutes, pansies, and punks. And a lot of his music was, uh, I just think, vastly underrated at that time. Really high-quality playing and high-quality music. Take care, guys. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.